I believe in sunshine, even through the rain. I believe in happiness when I'm going through the pain. Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo. I am the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews. You can read anytime you want. Quipster.net, that's the website to go to, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. I also invite you to check out the link to my other podcast where I've looked at films that were at least new at the time that I recorded them that came out over the last five years or so. It's called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, and you can find the link to that at my website, quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into the second part of this three-part series looking at parasites in 80s films. Last week I looked at Night of the Creeps, and this week another creepy crawly that gets into a human body and starts controlling us. Like zombies in a way, but having a lot more fun along the way. The Hidden from 1987. The Hidden is an R-rated film. It does have strong violence, gore, sexuality, and language. The runtime is an hour and 36 minutes. Kyle MacLachlan and Michael Nouri are the main stars. Edo Ross, Clarence Felder, Clue Gulliger, William Boyette, Claudia Christian, Catherine Cannon, Chris Mulkey, Richard Brooks, Larry Cedar, and Lynn Shea also appear. The director is Jack Shoulder, and the screenplay credited to Bob Hunt, but that's a pseudonym for Jim Kalf. Kalf actually came up with the plot for The Hidden. Way back in the day, he was musing about escalating reports. He was seeing on the news random acts of violence. No sense to make of it at all. He watched all of this and didn't know what to make of it. Usually, the perpetrator of this violence is described by the neighbors that knew him as a a quiet person. They never really suspected that that person would be capable of doing something so horrible. And Kalf had this inspired notion over time of like a body snatcher scenario where all of these people were actually good people, the quiet people that their neighbors described them as, but their bodies were used for a bit by some sort of malevolent being who made them do despicable things until they could no longer be used, and then that being would move on to the next host undetected. And Kalf liked this idea of a villain not being a specific person, that it could be anyone, it could move to anybody. And so he proceeded forward with this story about some sort of alien parasite that comes to Earth and then gets into a person's body, controls them, and then uses them for its perverse pleasure, at least until that person gets caught or killed, and then it moves on to the next host. In addition to being an established screenwriter, Kalf also had a passion during this period to direct movies. While he was writing what was then called just Hidden, He strongly felt that he had the vision to bring Hidden to life as its director. But it was never to be. Nearly every studio turned the script to Hidden down, except for Heron Communications. Heron produced the Nightmare on Elm Street sequels, and they were in a partnership with New Line Cinema. So they bought the script, but they had no intention of letting Kalf direct. Kalf's debut feature as a director was out around that period. It was a misfire comedy from 1986 called Miracles, and that was deemed a mediocre effort at best. New Line felt that Kalf did not have adequate skills as a director to make Hidden a success for them. So Kalf spent a day with New Line before he decided he just didn't want to stick around anymore. He chose instead to put all of his effort into another movie that was being made out of one of his scripts, Stakeout, 
which was a screenplay that he not only wrote, he also served as a co-producer on that project, the first effort from his new contract with Disney's Touchstone division. And because of so many studio rejections, Cal found himself in a situation where he had to choose between letting someone else direct his movie or maybe having it never made at all. So Kalf reluctantly okayed the sale, but if New Line wasn't going to allow him to lead, he didn't want to also stick around for those inevitable rewrites to his original screenplay. So he changed his name in the credits to Bob Hunt. That was a pseudonym he had used once before on a prior horror science fiction effort back in 1981 called The Boogans. And he used that name, and by the way, that the name came from one of the main characters of his first script effort, which got turned into a Canadian film called Utilities. It was made in 1980, but it didn't get released until 1983. And he used Bob Hunt as a pseudonym back then to avoid being typecast early on as just a writer of horror. But now he was going to use that pseudonym to protest what would likely be a butchering of his original screenplay that he valued very highly. New Line also decided at that point to change the title from Hidden to The Hidden because they felt, you know, horror movies often had the word the before the title and they wanted to get that crowd to come in and watch this movie too, even though it was appealing to people who liked action films as well as science fiction too. Now, during this time, New Line Cinema was negotiating with director Jack Shoulder. Shoulder was the director of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and they wanted him to direct... A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 as well. But Shoulder turned down that because he was not really a horror fan. He didn't want to further cement his reputation as only a horror film director. He felt the curse at that time because horror vehicles were all that he was being offered in terms of scripts, and he found nearly all of them that he had read terrible. New Line's head of production at that time, Sarah Risher, she had worked with Shoulder for a few years since New Line's days as a distributor when they were cutting trailers together, and Risher determined to find something that Shoulder might be the right fit to do for them. She sent him the Calf script for Hidden, the cop movie with science fiction elements, to see what he thought. Shoulder loved the writing. He loved the premise. He found it a real breath of fresh air. He thought this was like the Terminator, but with a very unique twist, something he would probably kill to do. There was one snag, though. New Line had already been talking about another director for Hidden, so he was kind of semi-slotted in there. And Shoulder thought that that person was like a total hack. He couldn't believe such a great script would be given to somebody who didn't have the kind of skills to handle anything more than maybe the action sequences at best. But this other guy also happened to be a friend of producer Robert Shea. He was a tough-minded executive who Shoulder had worked with on his first two features. Shoulder pitched his vision to Shea, and Shea was impressed enough to turn it over to him. And also, New Line gave him a budget of $5 million, and that made it the most expensive New Line production to that date. Now, as I mentioned, Shoulder did not like the horror genre, but for him, it provided the quickest avenue to becoming a Hollywood director. Unlike somebody like, say, Wes Craven, Craven really expressed himself through horror. Shoulder did not relate to horror at all, so he had to find other ways to express himself despite being in the horror genre. Shoulder said he was more influenced by humanistic directors like his favorite, Jean Renoir, and he tried to bring some of that emotion into a lot of the cheap and very bleak movies he had been assigned to create. He tried to find the human element in whatever he did. Now, although Shoulder thought Kalf's script was really enough to make a good movie out of as a cop thriller, 
He felt it lacked the soul, something extra to be truly great. A deeper emotional theme should be further underscored, particularly on what it means to be human. If the bad alien that was going around from host to host was attracted to humanity at its worst, in other words, it exhibited selfishness, the good alien that comes to Earth also to take it down should also learn about humanity at its best, in other words, selflessness. Shoulder also wanted the two heroes, the alien cop and the human cop, to bond during their limited conversations together. In Kalf's script, Beck's only family was his wife, and their relationship was portrayed as very jokey and superficial. Shoulder wanted to change that. He wanted Beck's home life to be full of love, full of warmth. He wanted to add more personality to his wife's character, and he also wanted to add a daughter to the family. This would be a connection to bind the men because he was going to give Gallagher, the alien cop, a backstory that he lost a life mate and his child that he cherished just as much. And the bad alien is the entity that killed them. Beck's daughter would be highly perceptive to Gallagher's true nature so that in the end, she willingly accepts what happens. And that's something would be very important to the character arc of Gallagher. Now, I think here I should go into the plot. We go to an LAPD detective. His name is Tom Beck. He takes down this bank robber at the beginning of the film. This bank robber seems to be going berserk in one of the bloodiest shootouts in department history. What Beck doesn't know is that the culprit actually is being controlled by this parasite within his body that loves danger. It loves money. It loves speeding and hard rock. Everything that uh, humans find exhilarating, it really feeds off of. So this alien parasite, though, cannot be killed by normal means. Instead, it moves from host to host whenever the body that it's in is about to expire or it's trapped and it wants to get into another body. So we find FBI agent Lloyd Gallagher enter the scene. He's on assignment from Seattle to help apprehend the perpetrator or perpetrators on killing sprees, the likes of which has the L.A. cops stymied. So Gallagher seems to hold the key as to why normally good people are going bad all of a sudden, but he's not letting on why. And then we find out through the course of it, the backstory, that he's actually also an alien inhabiting a human body that is there to basically exact revenge on the creature that took out his family. Now, according to Kalf, he named the alien character Gallagher because he liked the actor named Clue Gulliger, and he also thought Gallagher was more common of a name, and he liked the name, so he gave the alien name, at least his human name, Gallagher. Completely coincidence, Shoulder was somebody who had worked with Gulliger before in A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and he cast Gulliger here in this film, not as Gallagher, but as the police captain. Now, Michael Nori, he originally auditioned to play Gallagher. However, Shoulder did not really take him very seriously at that time. He already had somebody in mind for Gallagher, and but Nori was somebody formidable, at least. He had co-starred in Flashdance, and instead of having a casting director or another assistant reliance Lyons in some sort of ineffective manner, Shoulder got the idea while Nori was there to have him read lines opposite the person that he wanted for Gallagher, Jeff Fahey. Now, Nuri did very well reading Beck's lines, so he stuck him into Beck's role instead of Gallagher. But sometime later, Fahey ceased to be available to them, and that left the Gallagher role still open. So they cycled through as many actors as available to audition to come in prior to filming, and it came down ultimately to Kyle MacLachlan and, maybe fittingly given his name, Peter Gallagher. The studio suggested McLaughlin 
looked too slight, and Peter Gallagher had much more of a physical presence, so they opted that he go with Peter. But Shoulder, like McLaughlin's performance in Blue Velvet, he thought he was a terrific actor, and he convinced Newline that McLaughlin's vulnerability, his slightness, was an asset for what he wanted to do with that character in the film, and they bought it, so they let him cast McLaughlin. Now, during filming, Shoulder worried that Nuri's strong performance that he was giving was dominating the film, that McLaughlin was almost an afterthought compared to Nuri, and he started to have second doubts that maybe McLaughlin was perhaps the wrong choice. However, later on when he started editing the film together, he began to appreciate McLaughlin's very understated, very subtle performance, all of these things that he did in a very quiet fashion to bring Gallagher to life. In many ways, McLaughlin surprisingly steals the film, makes it his own, and gives the perfect performance. Shoulder has gone on to say throughout his career, Kyle McLaughlin is perhaps the best actor that he had ever worked with. Extremely easy to direct, delivers a solid performance every time. In contrast, Shoulder considered Nuri kind of a royal a-hole. Whatever Shoulder asked him to do, Nuri seemed to argue he wanted to do something different. Shoulder felt Nuri either didn't trust him as a director, or maybe he was resentful because he was not able to capitalize on Flashdance's major success, and now he's stuck in a B-movie directed by somebody whose only notable credit was A Nightmare on Elm Street 2. But regardless of the motive, Shoulder thought Nuri deliberately was undermining his authority. He wanted to make him look like an idiot in front of everyone else. It required a great deal of Shoulder's mental energy day in and day out. And occasionally, he had to employ reverse psychology to try to get Nuri to do whatever he wanted. So it was a toxic environment on the set whenever Shoulder and Nuri were together. And that contributed to kind of a negative vibe throughout a lot of the days of filming. And on the last day of Nuri being there, when traditionally everybody comes by to congratulate their main actor for a job well done, nobody said anything to Nuri. Everyone just walked away. Nuri had to see himself out without a word. Now, Shoulder decided to make other script changes to Kalf's screenplay. He wanted to keep the concentration on his main themes of what it means to be human. He wanted to keep the concentration of the story on his main themes. One change he made was to reduce the number of cop characters by half, not only for budgetary reasons, but also because it would make the narrative much more straightforward and people could concentrate more on what the film is ultimately about. He hired former LAPD detective Richard Whitaker to come in as a consultant to shape some of that police dialogue so that it would sound authentic. And that was especially important to Shoulder because he was a big fan of director Sidney Lumet. And he felt that this was a cop movie that he could do primarily in the style of Lumet instead of mainly a science fiction or horror genre piece that would only appeal to them. He felt this had a broader appeal to people who like cop films. Now, Shoulder felt that the six actors, as well as this trained dog that were going to be used in the film to host the alien, should essentially be playing the same character. By the time the parasite takes over their bodies, those people cease to exist except for their bodies. It's the alien parasite that is controlling them, and so therefore all of these actors should be delivering essentially the same performance. So we called together all of the actors that were going to be playing the host for this parasite to work on character uniformity throughout the movie. So they got together, they developed a lot of mutual behavior, the way they moved, they would be stiff, they would be awkward, they would have limited vocabulary. And during this time, Robert Shea, the producer, also wanted 
the least one physical tick that all of the humans could perform that the dog could also do. And that way the audience would know when the dog gets taken over at some point. So the dog's trainer, he mentioned to Shoulder that the dog had a tendency to stick out his tongue whenever he started getting aggressive. So the humans all started showing their tongue as kind of a physical tick to show the audience that they were under alien control as well. Claudia Christian, she plays one of the host actors. This was before her Babylon 5 days. She had to be very crafty when she auditioned for the role of Brenda the Stripper, her first movie role, and this was going to be a big splash for her. The script described Brenda as big busted, which Christian was not. At the audition, when she found out about this requirement, Christian stuffed her bra with her socks as well as as many tissues around the place that she could find. And she was called back to show them her physique in a bikini. They wanted to see a little more of her. But of course, they were going to find out until she made fake boobs using a mix of shoulder pads as well as electrical tape to keep it together. And then when it came time to show her body through this second audition, she decided she was going to quickly draw their attention away from her fake chest by ripping open her dress, quickly spinning around, and then walking out so they saw her backside. That ruse worked because she was offered the part within the hour. Now, Jack Shoulder was unhappy with Christian's deception. He had the costume designer devise a set of prosthetic breasts that could be worn under a cut-off t-shirt, but that also meant that Christian was not going to be going topless during her strip routine as intended, so Shoulder decided to accentuate Christian's backside. Christian, though, before her performance, determined she'd have to lose weight quickly to look good for her big screen debut. So she went to this clinic that put her on a 500 calorie a day diet that was mixed with vitamin shots and this substance that was meant to curb her appetite containing the urine of a pregnant horse. Christian loved the experience working on this film, except for this minor injury that she incurred when one of the squibs on her jacket burst and a particle hit her in the eye. Although she was not permanently harmed, Christian lost the ability to shoot prop weapons without a blinking reflex kicking in after that. And the worst part of Christian's experience came afterward. Christian gained a stalker who had seen the hidden and believed that she was actually some sort of alien who had brought AIDS to the human population. At least that's how Christian describes him. This stalker followed her in his car. He pleasured himself in front of her house. She called the police, but they said they couldn't really do anything. This was prior to the Rebecca Schaefer anti-stalking laws. One cop even suggested when she called again that she invite this guy inside and then shoot him and then claim he broke in. Making matters worse, it was the stalker that got her arrested. She got into a car accident sometime later. She was trying to lose him as he was following her, and then she ran from her vehicle after she had an accident. She saw him get out of his car and approach. She left the scene, and then he vanished when the crowd formed, and the cops didn't believe her story on why she fled the scene of an accident. Christian was slapped with six months of community service. She had to bake cookies for a playhouse as part of her punishment. She hated doing this, so she made a deal with the playhouse to pay for the theater's roof repairs if they signed off on her service. Now, getting back to the film, Shoulder was excited to direct his first car chase. Robert Shea told him, you know, don't bother with this car chase. Modern audiences were so used to car chases, they found them very routine. Shoulder had no experience to make one, so it was not worth the time and expense to go into it. But Shoulder determined he was going to make something truly special. He wanted to make the best car chase that Shay and everybody else had ever seen. So he had his assistant pull together clips of some of the great cinematic car chases 
in movie history to study what made them so exciting. He considered the French connection to be the best that he had seen. The excitement in that film was that the action went from car to car, including putting us in the car, looking out at the road in front, instead of what the others were doing, which was observing them from the outside. So Shoulder had three cameras placed on the car. One was mounted on the front bumper to give the view of the road as the car traveled. Uh, There was a, a driver's POV putting you directly in the car, and then another camera over the driver's shoulder. Now for exterior shots, he used wide angle camera lenses that were placed where the cars were going to go by so that it would look a lot speedier than it was because the car would get very small to large in a short amount of time, so it gave the appearance of acceleration. Stunt drivers also got close to these cameras as possible to give those appearance of high speeds. And what Shoulder did really did work. Those car chases are kind of exhilarating. And what made them so was not necessarily all of these techniques, although they did come in handy. But what Shoulder found that was interesting about this particular chase film is that this was with an alien who controlled humans, knowing that it could not be killed. Usually the goal of the person being chased in a car chase is to find a way to survive and then get away at the end. But in the hidden, the driver did not care at all about its personal safety of the human on board. It couldn't be killed in an accident. It had no care also about the innocent bystanders that got killed along the way. So he was going to capitalize on that by having its human completely exhilarated by this car chase, as well as plowing into many innocent victims throughout the course of that chase. So that at least made it somewhat unique. Now, New Line did remove quite a few things that were intended to be filmed. One was a scene where Beck finds a prior victim's body. This was going to be the opening scene. And then we cut right afterward to a bank robbery where this sadistic killer gets a lot of money and also kills people along the way. But New Line found that very unnecessary because, you know, bank robberies were so routine at the time. It was just a dull way to open the picture. And it was also going to be too expensive. So Shoulder instead decided he was going to open the film, not with the bank robbery, but with the aftermath, with the bad guy walking out of the bank. But the studio still felt it needed just a little bit more. So Shoulder filmed a title sequence in the bank with a stationary mock surveillance camera showing the perpetrator, the bank robber, murder people in the bank, and then that bad guy smiles into the camera as he blows it away. So we get the gist of the bank robbery without paying a lot of money. Now another change, especially to the ending, in Kalf's script, there's a politician who hosts the parasite. He was supposed to be the vice president of the United States, who happens to be visiting the Los Angeles area. Now, this was changed by Shoulder from the vice president to being a United States senator who is running for the presidency because he really wanted the alien to say the line, I want to be president. And that made much more sense to somebody who is not currently in line to be president. So in addition to that, Shoulder also added to the ending the flamethrower to the picture as a means to coax the bad alien out so that it could be shot by the one weapon that could kill it, which was in the possession of Gallagher. Now, in the original script, the alien does get away. It boards a plane back to Washington in the vice president's body, implying that it intends to become the most powerful entity on Earth. But Shoulder felt that audiences did not want to see the bad guy get away. So he changed that so that Gallagher could get that final shot in the end, and then he could get into what the film was really all about, which was an alien deciding that he would embrace humanity as worthwhile. 
Now, in addition to the script changes to try to shore up some of those themes, there was another tactic that was suggested by one of the production designers, which was to eliminate the color blue, at least as much as possible, from the picture. They would emphasize more greens and grays and browns, mostly greens. And the thought here was that blue was too comfortable to the audience. By keeping blue away from what they were seeing, the audience would remain unsettled, not know exactly where to focus or to be appeased. As much blue as possible was removed. All of the sets, all of the wardrobe were greens or browns or grays or some sort of color. Anything really but blue, anything that is blue in the film is completely incidental. Now, when previous screenings in front of live audiences met with overwhelmingly positive response, New Line felt they had a bona fide hit with The Hidden. So they invested $5 million more million, that was more than the budget for the entire film, into a national advertising campaign. But despite the push, The Hidden only managed to hit number six in the United States in its debut week on Halloween weekend in 1987. They lost publicity to the major phenomenon, the red-hot fatal attraction at that time. And they were also competing the same week with John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. So a lot of the same audience for a film that didn't have bankable stars or a premise that was readily understood by audiences. Overall, the film took in less than $10 million domestically, which made it a loser at the box office, at least in the United States. So a disappointment there, but since then... The Hidden has gone on to be kind of a minor cult classic for a lot of people. I do think it's one of the better B-movie treats from the 1980s. I think it lives up to its name by becoming a hidden gem, particularly for genre aficionados. If you love action, if you love sci-fi, and if you love horror, I think that you will get a lot of enjoyment out of watching The Hidden. And while it's not among the seminal classics of its era, like The Terminator or Aliens, I think that The Hidden is just as fun an experience to watch. It has solid laughs, it has terrific action, and there's this very interesting storyline to follow and characters that we come to care about. Now, looking at it today, I do think it feels like a precursor. If you're a big fan of the Grand Theft Auto series of video games, I feel like I'm watching like a demo of that game in a way. It's, it's like a lot of the same insidious love of fast cars, of loose women, of hot music, of explosive weaponry, the unbridled hedonism. That was all capitalized by those video games that came out sometime later. Instead of the human hosts, though, of course, it's the car hosts that you jump into. But essentially, it's a lot of the same vibe. And although this film may be low in budget, I do think that it's very high in fast-paced action and that it proved to be ultimately an influential film in its own right in the science fiction-slash-horror buddy cop comedies for many years to come. The action here comes at a fever pitch. It never lets you have a second to question some of the film's more implausible moments before moving on to the next locale and its next set of wild circumstances. I think this is possibly the best work in Jack Shoulder's erratic career, and he personally considers The Hidden his favorite of his films. And even though it was a pain in the butt for him to make, at least with Nuri, I think the chemistry of the two leads is very good. I think Michael Nori is fantastic in this film for as much problems as he caused for Shoulder. He still delivers a really effective hothead cop. And McLaughlin, I do think, I agree with Shoulder. He's perfect in this role as this very unemotional and very mysterious stranger who gives us subtle hints about what's going on without having to say it. The interactions between the two leads is very funny. A lot of what Shoulder does here is gutsy. And I think the momentum of the story goes on very well, even when the action is not on the screen. 
I think horror fans are going to enjoy the really gory moments. It's going to keep their attention. Science fiction junkies, of course, are going to love the alien aspect of it. And those who are just looking for a really good action flick, I think you'll be absolutely ecstatic. The Hidden is one fun scene after another, moments of intelligence, thoughtfulness. It's rare to find this in what should have been just another Z-grade knockoff. Screenwriter Jim Kalf, I think he's made it quite a career for himself. Two of the hippest buddy cop films, Stakeout, of course, that came out the same year, as well as Rush Hour, he had his hand in writing. But I think the hidden of all his films gets the comedy and thrills mixture better than anything else that he's made. I think the hidden is worth finding, and that's why I'm giving this film three and a half stars out of four. Three and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that this is a good film. If you're a genre fanatic, if you like action, sci-fi or horror i think that this is one of the best of the hidden gems that you will find out there that people don't talk about as much as they should certainly if you love the terminator for all of those reasons this is about as good as a non-terminator film has been in capturing the formula of the terminator and doing it in a very refreshing and unique way even though at its core it's a lot of the same plot but it definitely does stand out by being its own entity even though the characters within the film are not their own entity anymore so three and a half stars is what i give the hidden by the way, there was a direct-to-video sequel that was done for The Hidden. It came out in 1984 called The Hidden 2, mostly made by people who had nothing to do with the original film, and it almost feels like they didn't even see the original film. It's a terrible movie. I definitely do not recommend continuing The Hidden with that film. I'm not going to cover it because not only did it come out in the 1990s, but I vowed never to watch it again. At some point, they also considered making The Hidden into a TV series. Shoulder was going to be involved. They were going to have a different body for the bad alien week after week, but it just never came to fruition. New Line, Heron sued the makers of an NBC TV miniseries called Something Is Out There in 1988 for copyright infringement because of the many similarities in the story. This is a premise that has been done quite a bit since. I think the most notable one being the film called Fallen. It has a very similar plot, but instead of an alien that is taking over the host bodies, it's a demon causing all of the mayhem. Anyway, this is a film that whose ideas have been recycled through so many other properties. Although, to be fair, it's also a film that has recycled many other films to become what it is. But still, very good for the B-movie that it is, so... Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this review. If you have your own thoughts about Hidden that you want to impart to me, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. My email is probably the best way to get in touch with me if you're so inclined. As far as what I'm going to be covering next week, well, it's going to be a movie that most people who listen to this podcast have heard of. It's probably a favorite among many of you. And the villain is not quite a parasite in the same way that it was in Night of the Creeps and The Hidden, but definitely is parasitic in many respects. Going back to 1982, John Carpenter's film that was a failure at the time, but has gone on to be kind of a cult masterpiece for many people, The Thing from 1982, that will be the film that I cover on the next episode. So I know a lot of you are going to be excited because some people have been asking me to cover that. So it will be on next episode. So check that film out again if you need to, to prepare for my thoughts on that. And until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Oh.